0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another show. Talking about beans and other things that you may want to know. I'm headed to Gehenna with some Yugalots and talking about some sexy foes. So sit here for a minute with it's a mimic. And everybody's favorite host. (laughs) Ah, That's right. Fuck you guys. I'm the best. Hi, everybody. This is Adam by myself again. Um, apparently, Dan is locking his windows these days, uh, so my days of breaking and entering are over. Uh, he wasn't too pleased that all of his liquor went missing, and um, I believe that he's pretty pissed off at Terry, which is good times. I'm pretty stoked about it. Uh, I'm having my own little blood war, which is just fantastic. I figured. Dan is Lawful Evil and, and Terry's Chaotic Evil. And I'm just happily sitting here in the middle as Neutral Evil, which uh, is... I mean, that makes a lot of sense, right? Especially considering um, that my favorite of all of the fiends are the Yugoloths. They're the least well-known. They are um, poorly represented, actually, in D&D, but they've got a whole lot of fun flavor and a very unique side to them. So we're going to be focusing on that today. Yugoloths. Um, the number one thing about them is all about greed. The thing that they ask more than anything else that says it right in the monster manual, the number one question from a Yugoloth is, what is in it for me? That's what they want to know. That's what they're into. So here's a little bit of a history before we start breaking down the actual monsters themselves. Um, the very first thing that you should know is that uh, they're from Gehenna. So Gehenna is the... Is the plane of existence is the lower plane that is neutral evil and it sits between the lawful uh, the nine hells and the chaotic uh, side of the abyss so the story goes that there were a coven of night hags that were in Gehenna and they were uh, commissioned by Asmodeus to create a new kind of fiend so they did they created the Yugalos and Uh, They created quite a few of them, and what they did was they ended up writing down their names in uh, what are called the Books of Keeping, which are four tomes. And this is important because, um, I don't think I've talked about this yet, but if you know a fiend's true name, not the name it goes by, not, not what kind of monster it is or its race, but if you know its true name, its real name, then you hold incredible sway and power over it, and it has to do your bidding. So these books of keeping have every Yugoloth's name in there except one, um, and we'll talk about that and who that is in a moment here. But um, the the Night Hags, this coven, uh, they fell to infighting, and the coven disbanded, and the books ended up getting lost over time. And they've been found occasionally by uh, poor mortals that managed to pick them up, and it usually blows up in their faces. But uh, as as people have found them over the eons, and uh, and had control over the Ugalots, they've also added other names of other fiends in there. So there are devils and demon names in there as well. So um, they've got they hold sway over absolutely um, like legions upon legions of of fiends. Now, obviously, this doesn't count for. Creatures like Asmodeus or Demogorgon—I mean, these are these are godlike creatures—and you, you reading their name out of a book is not gonna is not gonna hold sway over them. You're not gonna be able to control them. But it is true for every other one of the kinds of uh, uh, fiends that we find in any of the Monster Manual or Volos or or any of the other books. So, um, let's uh, let's talk for a moment about the one person that's not in the book and he's simply known as the general of Gehenna now he's an ultraloth and uh that's the highest level of what a Yugaloth can be um and uh and we'll talk about those uh at the end of the episode I think the last one because we, we go from the lowest cr to the highest but he is a uh he's the strongest so much that nobody actually ever um Contests his power level, but there are all sorts of Yugalos that go Roaming through the lower planes trying to find him he steers clear from absolutely all of the the Battles and the wars and everything and he runs his own army kind of as a separate warlord off to the side um, So He is a thoroughly powerful and evil entity and um, he is he is kind of the absentee leader of the Ugoloss. Um, But for the most part, Yugaloths will follow whoever the highest bidder is. They're mercenaries through and through. They're all about greed, and, and they make contracts. Most of those contracts have a, a loophole or something in it to be able to get out of the work should they want to. So they'll be there for the the fight as long as it's beneficial to them but they'll also bail if it stops being beneficial um and that's one of the things that i like about them is they're super i mean it says right in the monster manual um like the third word in on the yugoloth entry is the word fickle which is just absolutely fantastic uh, i love that these guys are like if you control them with the with the book they hate it and they become like petulant children they are um completely self-serving and uh, they're actually kind of suicidal to a degree as well uh, except on their home plane they have the same kind of rule that a lot of the other what what used to be called outsiders in previous editions um, but what a lot of the celestials and devils and demons have which is if they end up um, uh, dying on the prime material plane they just kind of dissolve and immediately pop back up, back in their own home realm. So you can't really kill them. The Yugoloths understand this, and so if they're hired as mercenaries, they will go to war, and they will fight to the death, and they'll, they'll happily hold a, a giant barrel of black powder and blow themselves up if it leads to the next thing, because they're getting paid for it. However, if you kill them on Gehenna... They die for real there. Now, what's interesting here and what makes them different, and this is kind of the last point before we get into the the uh, singular breakdowns of what each kind of Yugoloth is, uh, the interesting thing is that there's no rank, there's no promotion from within anywhere within the uh, Yugoloth lore whatsoever. There is for devils, that's key to who a devil is, and it's an option, although a rare one, for demons to be raised from one type of demon to another. But for yugoloths, it seems like they were created. And this is the form that they get. That's it. They don't get to, to work their way up through the ranks. And what's also interesting is that there's no way to make more. There's no lost souls or uh, entries through the river Styx or anything. A Yugoloth, um population the yugoloth population seems to be a finite number so if they die in Gehenna there's just fewer yugoloths forever which is kind of interesting because they don't seem to have any way to reproduce or procreate or uh, make more and that right there to me sounds like an amazing plot hook for a entire 20 level campaign um anyway uh, as far as mechanics go, yugoloths are absolutely full of all sorts of resistances, all the ones that you would expect, like fire, cold, lightning, uh, bludgeoning, slashing, and, and piercing from non-magical weapons. Uh, they've, a lot of them have, uh, magical resistance as well, um, and all of them are immune to poison and acid. Every single one of them also, uh, except one, and we'll get to that in a bit, uh, innately teleports and and can just freaking leave whenever it wants they all speak both abyssal and infernal and they have telepathy for 60 feet so these guys are really good at bridging the gap between um kind of devils and demons they're going to be able to sit down and be negotiators as well and they're totally able to deal with mortals Um, so let's get into each one of them Uh, And we're going to start off, actually, with Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes. We're going to start off with CR3. So, already, with the Demons and the Devils, they started off with, like, I I think the Devils had a CR0 and the Demons had a CR18. Maybe it was one quarter, but uh, the the yugoloths start off at CR3. So, we're coming in at the base level, and these ones are actually unique. They're not even really part of of the army. I'm talking about the Marenaloth. Now the Marenaloth is a cloaked Grim Reaper type. These are the boatmen on the River Styx. I spoke uh, quite heavily in the uh, Demon episode and the Devil episode about what the River Styx is and how it functions and that it, um, mortal souls have to pass through it and they get wiped clean and depending on um, how evil they are or, or where they enter the River Styx, they will end up in different areas of the lower plains um as either uh, mains or lemures but so how do people cross the river sticks you know they don't have a fly speed well they've got the moreno Loths. they can fight but they prefer not to so they uh would rather be boatmen on the river Styx, uh, ferrying people back and forth for gold uh it's usually not a, a very high price either um But what's really interesting about them is that you can coax them away from the river sticks with a decent enough, attractive enough contract, and they can actually capture and become captains of other ships. They masterfully handle them uh, through any storm. They avoid all natural hazards because they are magically bonded with the ship itself. So it's, you know, part of the ship, part of the crew. Uh, but they are the only one that actually is bound to the ship, uh, kind of like Davy Jones was in the Pirates of the Caribbean. Two, I want to say, it was yeah, Dead Man's Chest. So um, the thing about them is their ships are their main priority. Any ship that a Love captain's be- immediately becomes its lair as well, and it has like lair actions. It can heal the ship by four D ten, which is huge. Um, with the Ghosts of Saltmarsh, we just got a whole bunch of naval combat stuff. Imagine a ship that can heal itself. Um, it can also increase the ship's speed by 30 feet uh, for one round, but it can do this over and over and over again, right? So these ships are going to be incredibly fast. Uh, and it can also fill the ship itself with strong winds, which will act as difficult terrain um, within the ship itself. It also imbues its ship with one of the following regional effects as well. Either A, the ship does not sink, even if it takes damage and the hull is breached, it won't sink. Um, the the next one, uh, B, uh, the ship always, always stays on course, no matter what. Uh, whatever the destination is that the Morenaloth wanted to go to in the first place, that's where the ship will hit. And then... Uh, The final thing is that uh, creatures aborted can ignore the wind and weather effects, um, but the Marenoloth can choose which creatures can ignore these wind and weather effects, um, and the creatures will still take damage. They just won't get slowed down or blown overboard or anything like that. So there's kind of a semi-force field that they can put around people. Now, they're also innate spellcasters, but they get spells like... uh, like environmental spells, control water, gust of wind. I think control weather is one of them as well. So these are, um, that's what you would expect from something that is inherently built into being a ship captain, right? So uh, the big mechanic that I like with it is that it has a fear gaze as well that can cause a frightened condition. So this feels like it's a bit of a tyrannical ship captain. That's solely focused, singly focused on, on its job and its mission and keeping its ship um, uh, sailing and, and kind of on course and on track. So the Morenaloth is a lot of fun because we don't really have anything like that in any other, um, any other sort of, of fiendish lore at all. So I really like them for the River Styx, and the idea that these are like Grim Reapers that are the guardians of the Lower Plains is just a great way to get started if your party is heading into the Lower Plains. The next entry on the list is the Metzaloth. Now, the Metzaloth are pretty famous. They are... Um, I would say one of the more recognizable C-tier monsters that you've probably seen art for these guys. Uh, they're human-sized insectoids, much like uh, fiendish four-armed cockroaches. They prefer to use a trident, so you often see them holding the tridents, even though they've got these four like pincher claws as well. Now, they make up the majority of the Yugaloth populations. I would say that even maybe even two or, hell, even three of the Books of Keeping are just full of Metzaloth names. There are so many of these compared to the other Yugaloths, and uh, they act as the foot soldiers. They're the ones that you're going to run into. They're the most common by far. The cool thing about them is that they've got this lore that says that uh, if they get surrounded by enemies they will exhale toxic fumes and and try to escape but then when you sit there and you look at their actual mechanics and you go looking for this breath weapon it doesn't exist and it takes a second to realize that what they're doing is they're just casting cloud kill so uh, again every one of these yugaloths are an innate spellcaster one way or another it's odd to me that uh, that the lore and the mechanics don't quite line up the way that we expect them to, but that's, I find, very true of everything in 5th edition as well. Where it's almost like there was a conversation and a description. <laughs> Sorry, Terry. I think I broke a coffee table. Anyway, there's a, a conversation and a... Shit, that's not going to come out either. He's going to be pit. Hold on. Dan. Hold on. Dan was here. There we go. Fixed that problem. Um, So, I'm going to have my own little blood war, and I'm so excited about it. Anyway, Metzaloths are... um, They're incredibly interesting creatures because they are going to be the ones that are just the base level Yugoloths that are all about the greed and the mercenary lifestyle. And this is going to be, I mean, at CR5, that's a good introduction to who Yugoloths are. They can, one of these guys can be a pretty decent boss monster for a tier one party. But then by the time you hit tier three, you can see six or seven of these guys and, you know, with a couple of decent uh, fireballs, and um, and some strategic gameplay, you can wipe out these guys by the dozen. So, I really enjoy Metzaloth for what they bring to the table. Um, but, they're not as much fun as the freaking weird Durgaloth. Now, this is back from Mordenkine's Tum of Foes. Um, now, this is not to be confused with the Dragloth, which I talked about in the uh, demon episode. That was the one, the four-armed creature with the glabra and the drow high priestess made an offspring. No, we're talking about the Durgaloth. Um, these things are, you're not going to get them mistaken if you see the two of them in the same room. These guys are green. They have five clawed arms, three legs, squat like barrel-like bodies, and they've got insect heads. They look almost like, um, like, ant green ants heads they are considered dumb brutes and they either don't understand or refuse to follow complex commands they're vicious they're destructive and they revel in their butchery and you can actually often hear them laughing as they murder their victims on the battlefield they are just they will out berserk a, a a barbarian even a A a Berserker Barbarian. These things are going to go toe-to-toe with them. And at CR7, they got a good chance of of wiping out even your average Barbarian. They've got Multi-Attack. It's weird the Multi-Attack only has two claws. um, But I'm willing to forgive that based on their special ability. Again, uh, we've got some some spellcasting abilities innately. Darkness, Fear, Sleep. Uh, To be exact, but what's really fun with them is that they have a recharging whirlwind attack that can hit any adjacent um, creatures as long as these guys move uh, past five feet, at least five feet of their 30 feet of movement. So any adjacent creatures. Now... This is with, with their claw attacks, but the thing that, that's crazy about it is that if the battlefield lines up perfectly and they have just an open corridor with enemies uh, like on both sides of this open 30 foot long, 5 foot wide stretch, they can hit up to 20 freaking creatures with these claw attacks in a single turn. And this recharges. So this thing is just massive. It can do some crazy damage. I would love to walk one of these things through an army of NPCs just to prove a freaking point to a party. That's a lot of fun. Next on the list is the Cantaloth. The Cantaloth are weird. Um, Again, you may have seen these. I often see them listed amongst um, art of fiends uh, mixed in and amongst the devils and the demons. So they're pretty popular. They're from Mordenkainen's Tome they're CR-8. They're red, armored quadrupeds. Like, uh, Imagine, though, that their neck is nearly as thick as their torso, and instead of a head, they just have a gaping maw of teeth at the end of their neck with a 30-foot-long barbed tongue. I hope I described that well because these things kind of defy description. Um, so instead of a, like, where you'd think their head would be, is is this giant mouth full of razor-sharp teeth and a long, spiked, 30-foot-long tongue comes flying out of there. Um, Now, these guys prefer guard work, and they're really built for it. They also never do any more or any less than exactly what they were asked, period. So these are not going to be... um, They're almost just freaking guard dogs. They're not going to be having conversations. They're not going to have goodwill or loyalty. They are just going to do whatever they have been asked to do in their contract. They've got great passive perception. They've got a 120-foot true sight, so your invisibility isn't going to help you there. Um, and they've got this, this ability which radiates 60 feet of this anti-magic field almost that just negates teleportation attempts, either in or out. Additionally, it can't be surprised. So these are really the perfect guard animals. Um, they're also these are the ones, the only Ugalos that cannot teleport. Now the crazy thing about the tongue attack, which, man, I'm sure that Terry would just be giggling if he heard me say that those two words. So the thing about the tongue attack is, it, if it hits, the target is grappled, and restrained, and immediately pulled the thirty feet towards the off. But that's it. That's where it holds the enemy. So it does a base amount of damage, but not a whole bunch. It prefers to just hold them and not kill them, unless they've been specifically told to kill any trespassers or intruders. So these guys would be great to put up against even a Tier 1 party. They're going to be able to hit. They're going to be scary. You're not going to be able to do much damage. They're going to know that you're there, and they're going to capture you. Until the boss comes or or whoever it is that they signed a contract with shows up. If you have trouble coming up with a way to actually capture a party. Um, because you know that they're just going to try to take on the 40 knights. Um, and they're going to get, you know, cut down. A Caneloth is a really fun way of of using um, a monster to capture and not kill. And there's very few of those in Dungeons & Dragons, especially in 5th edition. Uh, next on the list, we have the Hydroloth. Hydroloth is a CR9. This one's from Mordenkind's Tome of Foes as well. Man, we, so we have another frog monster. The Hydroloth, it, it feels like it's going to get lost in the shuffle at first glance. Between Bullywugs, Hezru, Slod, Banderhobbs, Froghemis... Uh, Fifth ed, I mean, Dungeons & Dragons just seems to have a weird obsession with the concept of, of frog monsters. Um, and this just seems to be another one of them. The thing that stands apart with these guys is that they steal thoughts. And they will deliver these thoughts to their masters. So, yes, they're amphibious. Uh, yes, they're well suited to coastal and underwater combat. But they've got lots of mind-warping spells. They have advantage on attacks if they're submerged underwater, which is neat. But their big thing that they have is called Steel Memory. This is their ability. This is their unique, mechanical, nasty uh, feature that they have. It does some pretty solid psychic damage. And on a DC-16 intelligence save, so, you know, the dump stat for nearly everyone. DC-16... The target, if they don't make it, will lose all their proficiencies. They will not be able to cast spells. They will not be able to understand language. Their intelligence and charisma drop to five. That's crippling. If this works on two or three different creatures, you can just cripple a party completely. Now, the thing is that in 5th edition, you can always you know, save at the end of your next turn. You can try to roll your save again. Not for this effect. You can try to, to save again after a long rest. Which means this is going to incapacitate you for a minimum of 8 hours. And then you have to make the DC-16 intelligence save with an intelligence of 5. Which means you have a negative modifier on that. This could cripple your party for literally days. I love the idea of hydroloths, uh hitting coastal towns and raiding areas and whatnot. And people sit there and they go, I I don't remember why. I don't know why this happened. And then they go back to whoever their master is and they say, okay, look, here's the deal. There's this population. Here's where the bank vault is. City hall is this. This is the guard rotation because they've stolen these memories. And everybody left in town is lost and confused What a strange and interesting setup Uh, with a CR nine monster. So you can be dropping this for a tier two and tier three party, and it's going to be pretty effective. Even tier four, if you drop five or six of these things in there, that's going to be an imbalanced combat. But well, by the time that you're level 20, you should be blowing up more than your average frog monster. Uh, CR-9 as well also has, from the Monster Manual, the Nycoloth. These guys are large-sized. Um, they're muscular, green, uh, winged, and horned. Uh, they look like gargoyles, essentially. They tend to wield a giant axe or a large sword. They're, most, they're the most loyal of the Yugoloths, but only if they're treated well. If you treat them well, they will follow you, and they will go above and beyond what their contract says. These guys are innate spellcasters as well. They can detect and dispel magic, they also have the ability to go invisible. They've got powerful melee attacks, um, and its claws do persistent, worsening, slashing damage until healed. So when you get hit by one of these claw attacks, you take the damage. On the next round, you take the damage again. On the round after that, you take even more damage from this wound that is just opening and opening. You are you are bleeding out. And you need to get healed from this thing. I would say, as a DM myself, I would rule it that if this wound is not healed, when you're in death saves, that's an auto-fail. It's the same thing as getting hit by someone while you're unconscious, right? So, um, these guys can be pretty powerful and pretty nasty, and they can live up to their their CR9, especially if the party doesn't have a healer. We jump up to uh, CR11 now with the Yagnoloth. The Yagnoloth, again, Mordenkines, Tome of Foes. These guys are interesting. they got a lot of fun flavor to them. They're the skilled negotiators of the Yugoloths. Um They're mostly naked fiends. I mean, they've got like a loincloth with a book over their genitals. Uh, and they wear a cape. They've got reddish skin that looks, you know, almost humanoid and normal. Um, like, they're large creatures. But they have small horns on their head. And they've got large clawed feet. But they've got bat wings for ears. The cape that they have is draped over one arm, and it reveals a human-sized arm, which on a large-sized body seems relatively small. Um, But this is the arm that it uses to draft all of the Yugaloth contracts. If you're going to make a contract with any Yugaloth, it's probably going to be a Yagnaloth. They are the base contract maker, and they will actually work for more powerful Arcanoloths. Uh, when the Yagnoloth, however, needs to use force, it shifts its cape to the other side, revealing a huge muscular arm with 15 foot reach that it can use to attack. These guys command lesser Yugaloths, and they usually work for Arcanoloths and Ultraloths. I mean, they follow the contract to their letter, but these are the guys that work in the loopholes that allow them and other Yugaloths to ignore the obligations if they want. They've got some pretty good saves, they're innate spellcasters, they have cool uh, lightning attacks, which we don't see a whole lot of down in, in the lower planes. so that's kind of fun too, that'll catch your party off guard. Their small arm has an electrified touch that deals a whopping 68 lightning damage, not 68, 6-D-8 <laughs> lightning damage, and uh, the massive arm has that 15 foot reach I mentioned, it does major damage and can stun enemies. If a creature is stunned this way, the Yagnoloth can then steal 7d8 plus 4 hit points from the creature. It heals half of that itself. So 7d8, so that's up to 56 plus 4, so up to 60. It can do 60 damage at max damage. It can heal itself for half that amount, and it forces a constitution save. And on a failure of that save that damage that they do is also done to the maximum hit points of the creature that it hits. So this arm attack just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Additionally, it can use its recharging ability that it has to allow two nearby allied yugalos to make melee attacks as reactions. So instead of, like, this is an action to trigger this, um, but instead of attacking, maybe it has a couple of bodyguards with it. That totally makes sense, right? So, um, and it inspires the bodyguards to get just free attacks as reactions. But the craziest part about this whole thing is that the freaking Yagnoloth can use its teleport ability as part of its multi-attack. So it can hit and leave, or it can show up and hit. That's crazy. So this thing is, has got some real potential on a battlefield, and you're going to be able to mess up a party. I feel like Death Spirals are uh, they're on the table with one of these guys, especially if you hit a high tier two party. Arcanoloths are um, probably my favorite of the yugoloths, just because they're the first mini I ever pulled out of a pack, and I'm like, well, what the hell is this? It's a medium-sized CR-12 creature from the Monster Manual. Um, you've probably seen the art for it. And a lot of people actually think of Arcanoloss when they think of Yugoloths in general. They're shape-shifting spies and diplomats with immaculate grooming. Their natural form is an anthropomorphic jackal in fine robes. Um, they're powerful spellcasters. They're highly intelligent. They're greedy for information and power and magic and magic items. They do command Yugoloth armies occasionally, but it's all about the intelligence for them. They're hoarding information. Um, and they really do like to uh, transform into other creatures and masquerade um, as anything besides uh, their jackal form. So you don't always know you're dealing with an Arcana lot at first. Additionally, they speak all known languages, they have great saving throws. Claw attacks do poison damage, and they've got a whole lot of powerful spells, up to and including the level 8 spell Mind Blank. Arcanalos are going to be a pain in the ass to deal with, um, and if you've got even a remotely strategic Dungeon Master using them, with a couple of other yugoloths nearby, see the yugoloths all come in packs, they're always working together, they're always part of an army. So this may be a CR twelve creature, but he's got five or six bodyguards, and you've got a CR eighteen or nineteen or twenty, even encounter here. So, arcanaloths and yugoloths in general can be very very dangerous, even to high tier four. Next on the list is the oinaloth. <laughs> the oinaloth is also a CR twelve. It's from it's the last one from Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes. Um. These guys are gross. They're a lot of fun, but in all the wrong ways. They're clad in rags, and they're covered in boils. They're diseased, purple-skinned creatures with, with ram heads and long fingernails. They're purveyors of pestilence and disease. I mean, that's the name of the game with these guys. They're all about disease. They're really the last resort As they spread disease to everyone on each side of the battle. So, I mean, they're not the first one that that a demon or a devil or even a mortal is going to try to make a deal with. They're going to be kept kind of in the back, waiting in the wings. Because these guys will walk through battlefields. They'll poison everybody around them. Both sides. and, And even the ground and plant life nearby. For a very steep price, they can also cure diseases, but the afflicted creature will never fully recover. These guys are inane or innate <laughs> they're not inane. They're innate spellcasters, they've got powerful spells, their claws do massive necrotic damage, they have a transfixing gaze as part of the multi-attack, and they and their gaze charms and restrains its victims, which means that they're gonna do whatever they're told, but they can't move. Uh, It also has two different recharging abilities, uh, and it gets a little out of control here pretty quickly. The first one is called Bringer of Plagues. This recharges on a five or a six as a bonus action as well. So even scarier. The Bringer of Plagues ability blights a 30 foot radius, radius, not diameter here, for 24 hours. All plants wither and die, and any healing to a creature that is caught in this area is halved. Additionally, when a creature enters at the start of uh, its turn in the area, it has to make a con save or take 4d6 necrotic damage and be poisoned. This poison means the creature cannot regain hit points. So, before I go any further, anybody that heals uh, in this area only gets half the healing that they normally would. If they fail their con save, they take 4d6 necrotic damage, and they are not able to regain hit points. After 24 hours, so not a long rest, but 24 hours specifically, then this creature can try the save again, but if they fail again, their max hit points are reduced by 1d10. If this reduces a creature to zero hit points, it dies. And here's the thing about it. You still cannot heal. And you need three successful saves against the poison in order to end it. Which means you can be poisoned for days. Not able to heal. And you've already taken some damage. And your max hit points are dropping as well. And it still has another recharging attack called Corrupted Healing. This recharges on a six. And it allows the oinoloth to touch a willing creature and restore all of its hit points immediately. And it'll even remove one disease or a condition. um, Specifically, I think it's uh, the blinded condition, deafened, paralyzed, or poisoned. But there's a cost. And the cost is that that creature takes a level of exhaustion and has its max hit points reduced by 2d6. This cannot be undone with a wish spell or with anything except a wish spell or greater restoration being cast on the target 3 times within an hour. So you've got to have some high powered um some high powered spellcasters there. And again, if your max hit points reach a 0, you die. So 3 times within an hour for Greater Restoration, or, or a Wish. This thing is all about draining your max hit points over and over and over again. And it is... It's devious. So it, it'll sit there and it will... It will infect people on the battlefield, and your your heroes are going to start dropping, and they realize that wait a minute, oh shit, I'm in a whole lot of trouble, and maybe the oinoloth gets away, and and then it shows up and it says, look, I can heal you. You only have four hit points left. You failed your save three times, and you're on death's door. No one else can heal, can heal you, but I can. But I will remove the disease, and I will. Restore all of your hit points, but you take a level of exhaustion. And before that restoration hits, your max hit points are reduced by two d6. That's scary. So this thing is kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of creature, and I absolutely love it. There's nothing like this in the Monster Manual. Mordenkainen's really stepped up, especially with the with the Yugoloths and the other fiends. The final one that we have uh, to talk about is the Ultraloth. Ultraloths are humanoids that look like stereotypical aliens with green skin, long heads. Uh, they've got golden eyes. Uh, they're, these are the freaking X-Files aliens, right? They're, they're the gray um, alien autopsy, but kind of beefier. That They've got some muscles to them. Uh, this is what the General of Gehenna is. He's a super version of an Ultraloth. They don't have any other facial or facial features, so they just have these like green skin with these long ovoid heads and these these golden eyes. Their eyes can actually memorize creatures and leave them helpless. They're commanders of the Yugoloth armies, but they act more like mob bosses than generals. They're always scheming for more power. They hate everything, including each other, and they're openly hostile toward one another. Uh, they, as a matter of fact, also won't even fight in the armies. They will stand off to the side and allow the lesser Yugoloths to fight in the armies, but the other Yugoloths are, are completely fine with that. They will all listen and obey them, uh, and because they know their place in their ranks, largely due to the Ultraloths' infamous reputation for cruelty. But this is the most powerful Yugoloth at CR 13. So, this leads me to believe that you're not going to run into a single Yugoloth out on the battlefield. You're going to run into a, a Ultraloth, uh, surrounded by Mexaloths or an Arcanaloth or two working together, um, with an Oynaloth standing off at the side waiting to be unleashed to spread disease and pestilence. That's what we're dealing with here. Yugoloths should come in hordes. They should have contracts. They should have loopholes. They should be greedy and cruel. And they should be um, devious. All of, all of them should be devious to some degree or another. Um, except maybe the, the Dergaloths, which just... Those, those are the insect ones with the five arms and the whirlwind attack. I absolutely love yugoloths, And they really need to be used more even if you are just going to have a regular kind of blood war campaign or you're going up against demons, take the opportunity to grab a couple of the weirder yugolos, bring them in and give a glimpse of the larger scale of the blood war to your players. And remember, I don't think that, that I've said this, but it's really useful. Your players Can hire Yugoloths if they want. If they have the means to, Yugoloths will totally 100% side with them. For a fee, usually with a catch, and they will do it, they will do the bidding in the most brutal, negative, destructive way that they possibly can, because these things are just pure evil. They don't give a shit about law. They don't give a shit about corruption and destruction. They just are out for themselves. And if you're in the way, you're fucked. Which, speaking of in the way, I need to get out of here before Terry comes home. So, um, and it is, oh God, almost 3 a.m. now. Terry, buddy, where are you? Man, I should just go like hide in the cafe across the street. Make sure he gets home. Okay, I'm a little worried about the poor little guy. I'll let you know what's what's going on. Um, I'm also going to go leave a bunch of, of boot prints around. I have Dan's boots with me, so his work boots. So I'm going to leave a couple like drywall prints here. I'm hoping that I can have these two guys at each other's throats by the time that we get to the proper Fiend episode. So, uh, I will be talking to you tomorrow with our last section on Fiends. <laughs>